Well, hi, and welcome to the latest installment of our podcast. We are so glad that you've decided to spend some time with us today. I am one of your hosts, Sarah, and I am joined today by... Uh, Christian, your other host. And we are so excited to have all of you joining us uh, for our podcast discussion. And hopefully you'll join us um, for our meeting coming in March, the second Tuesday of March of Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Uh, Sarah, um, why don't you bring us into this book? I know you've spent some time reading it and um, you know, you've read it probably twice now and, and thinking about it. So it'd be great to hear from you. I think the first thing that I wanna say about this book is that you need to get it. Out of all of the texts that we've read this year, I've really valued them, recommended many of them. This is a book, if you're gonna read one book this year, written about racism and the call to be the church, and particularly for those of us who are white, an invitation to hear from one of our siblings, this is the book you should read. It's one of the best books I've read. It's powerful, and I think it's an especially prophetic invitation to our community. We do have copies of the book available at the church, and you can pick that up. Uh, if we run out, I can order some more. Otherwise, you can also find it from your local bookseller. The book is I Am Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Before directly speaking about the aspects of the book itself, I'd like to tell you a little bit of a story, and I think it situates some of what this book is inviting us into. It's a story about how the stories we tell and the stories we hear and the voices we listen to impact how we show up in the world and what we believe is reality and how we engage with it. I'm gonna share this story both because it's personal and because for me, it animates part of the reason that we're doing this work. Many of you know my story. Having been raised inside of an evangelical faith community, very passionate young woman who loved Jesus and really earnestly wanted other people to know Jesus and love Jesus as well. I went on my first mission trip to Mexico when I was 13 years old. My time as I emerged into high school and early college, was filled by many of such trips throughout those summers. Mexico, Honduras, Paraguay, Romania, spending anywhere from 10 days to four weeks in each of these locations. I had some powerful and beautiful and life transformative experiences that happened in those spaces. Times in which I was opened up to the world and, and different cultures and ways of understanding, was able to both experience love and, and be loved and learn and grow in many ways. Of course, any such encounter and engagement with cultures that are dissimilar from our own poses possibilities of learning and wrestling in new ways. For me on these trips, particularly as I encountered deep and trenchant poverty, I wrestled with how to make sense of my own locatedness. As you know, even though I grew up on welfare, I grew up in the suburbs and I grew up with middle-class grandparents and on account of both my family and connections and the communities in which I lived along with my race, was always able to access the world in many ways as a middle-class person. Seeing such trenchant poverty and spending time in places such as Romania in the aftermath of the Cold War, the Iron Curtain, 
brought up for me questions that I hadn't before considered. Some I, I didn't even understand or didn't know the questions to ask though. For instance, in my time that I spent in Paraguay, I, I had no understanding or awareness of the civil war that had happened throughout my childhood in the neighboring country of El Salvador, which deeply impacted the present experience that I had during my time in Paraguay itself. It wasn't until my late 20s when I took a class through United Seminary as part of our theological consortium during my last semester at Bethel Seminary that I had the opportunity to explore some of these intersections, thinking about the stories we live and the stories we tell. During this trip, which was a global justice immersion course and trip experience, I had the opportunity to read both the history of El Salvador, read from some of the theologians from the country, and learn more about the context of the culture to which I was going to go visit. This situated my questions and my experience of the country in a whole different way than I had ever experienced my time spent abroad on any former mission trip. One day before we went on the trip, we had the opportunity to celebrate what in English is known as the popular mass. This was filled with songs and, and cries and, and prayers that had been shaped through the poor in El Salvador. This was the gestational space for the formation and birth of what is known as liberation theology, where the plight of the poor and the way that the intersections of power and class and the ways that only eight families really controlled all of the money and finances in El Salvador was intersecting with the experience of the Holy Spirit and of faith and of God. It was a bearing witness to this sort of trenchant, deep poverty that the people were suffering through that shaped and changed the ministries of many Catholic priests, no less that of Archbishop Oscar Romero. Archbishop Romero was chosen because he was a moderate. The wealthy elite of the country believed that he was a person who would seek to keep the peace and would in many ways turn a blind eye to the atrocities that were being waged against the poor in the country. It was his bearing witness, though, to the suffering of the poor. And when his friend and fellow priest was assassinated along with a poor activist, that Archbishop Oscar Romero sensed in his own soul that God was calling him to a different sort of way of leading. As I sat there this day listening to the songs about communion being a space to remind us that God has always cared for feeding the least of these, that indeed the scriptural affirmations that we read throughout the Hebrew Bible of God is the father to the fatherless and cares for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner in our midst, were not just true then, but were invitations and ways of showing up that God invited and desired for both us and as all of God's people to be able to be present in the world. I listened to these songs and suddenly something broke open in me as I heard the story and the history of what happened during the civil war in El Salvador that launched in the early 1980s. I had never heard of a civil war before. Really, part of that is due to my age, but a lot of it was due to my own locatedness and the stories that I was aware of. It shocked me and shook me to the core that during my own childhood, that a civil war of such magnitude and such destruction could be occurring in a country not so far away that I could fly to on an airplane. Indeed, it, it was a country that neighbored a place that I had been not long after the civil war en ended. As I sat there that day and sang those songs, being told the stories about how part of the army would drop leaflets from helicopters around the city saying things such as, be a patriot, kill a priest knowing that people buried their Bibles in their backyards out of fear that they would be accused of being Marxists and thus a danger to the government. 
I was haunted by the realization that I had gone to countries such as El Salvador intending to bring the love of Jesus that was in my own heart to these places where I believed they had not heard the gospel. At the same time, people who already were Christians were burying their Bibles in their backyards. I sat there that day and wept. I wept in horror in grief and an awareness of the complexities of the way that geopolitical forces are moving at the same time that we are seeking to be the church. And for the first time in my life, I I sat in horror and recognized that even though earnestly I had been seeking to love Jesus, I had been living only out of a part of an awareness of the story, not an awareness of the whole of the story of the complexities that were shaping my foray as a white American. Yes, I had known part of the story, a story that undergirds the entirety of all of human history and of my entire life, that that God is love. And as an earnest young person, I wanted to be a bringer of that love and that light and that truth and that goodness to the world. That story wasn't false. It's just that my own experience and understanding of that story was limited by my perspective. I only knew a part of the story. I wasn't aware as I went to those countries in Latin America of the complexities of how geopolitics were shaping their experience and their lived realities. I wasn't aware of the ways in which Christianity and God's spirit was already present there in the communities that I thought hadn't known Jesus. I didn't know all of the stories. Thus, in seeking to understand what it means to be Christian in the world, from that day forward, I felt a deep sense of invitation that to be Christian in this space asked me to know more stories. It asked me to hear from voices that I hadn't understood or heard from, ones that hadn't been privileged. That is part of why, as a community of faith, we are doing this work. It is to hear stories. Again, not that that's fundamental story of God's love being true and real and for the whole of humanity isn't the case. But it's that when we don't understand the ways in which there are multiple stories, the ways in which there are different aspects of stories, the ways in which our story is not equivalent with God's story, that this is how then we become open up to the ways in which God is actually inviting us to live in the world. Austin Channing Brown's work represents such an offering. It is an invitation that through in hearing her story, we are opened up to more broadly hear and understand and think about God's story and God's invitation and God's work in the world. The book, I Am Still Here by Austin Channing Brown, narrates both her own story, her experience of being a young Black woman in a family that imbued within her a pride in her Blackness, even as she was in a world that didn't know how to love her her or that Blackness. She talks about the ways in which she danced between white worlds and Black ones, the ways in which she saw that even when there was racial diversity, such as in her high school, that just because people were coexisting, it didn't mean that there was actual harmony or unity or valuation of her and others whose skin was black like hers. She narrates the way in which she finds herself in college, loving Jesus and seeking to be present in the world, but discovering there aren't friends here. The ways in which her showing up to share her story became a place that was exhausting, a world in which her critiques were interpreted as invitations to, why don't you just leave then if you have a problem? And yet in the midst of that, 
her own deepening into the sense of knowing herself as God's beloved, that in spite of the histories of oppression and the ways in which there are forces that have sought her own erasure, that she has known the power and the resiliency of the generations of black women who have continued to live and love and to believe that the world could be other than it was, of a black church who believed that God didn't belong to white people, but the God of all was the God of justice who cared for them, who would hold and carry them forward. And in the telling of her story, she shares this story both as a solidarity with her own self and her own people, but also as an invitation, if we will but pick it up, to consider what it means to hear another story, to recognize that even though at times in conversations around race, shame can rise. For instance, in our own conversation about our church name of Colonial, one of the things that we have heard from some of you is, well, I've never heard this before. But of course, why would you? Your story isn't so different from my story as a young white American woman who just wanted to love Jesus and share that love in the world. That was my heart. That remains my heart to this day. And yet there were parts of the story that I didn't know and of which I was unaware. But instead of being a place for shame to spiral us away from the invitation to hear more stories, we have an invitation by God's spirit to turn to the stories such as those of Austin Channing Brown's. To be able to find ourselves, yes, people who have fallen short of the glory of God and of knowing the fullness of people's stories, but who through hearing the story are called to be born again. People who are called to transformation as we hear other stories. Being able to hear stories and to let them change us can be a very painful thing. But is this not the pathway of life to which we are called as followers of Christ? To continue to believe in a God whose spirit as Austin Channing Browns reminds us, a spirit who invites us to face the truth, a spirit who invites us to get in touch with history, to be able to look reality in its face and not turn away from the face of our neighbors of color. Here I'm speaking to those of us who are white, not to turn away from the stories and the pain in our own lives, not to turn away from the realities that racism, as she notes, was done on purpose to be able to face the truth of our own brokenness and frailty, to be able to face the truth of a, a legacy that is rife with complexities of violence and genocide and slavery. But in facing this haunting, as she calls us to do, we then remember that we know a God who has called us to live into the truth, for we know that it is this truth that will set us free. It is only by moving into this work, a work that haunts us, that as we discover, as she notes, that this is the Holy Spirit's work and it is holy work. Indeed, we must trust that the Holy Spirit is here, she reminds us, for only by being truthful can we get to how to imagine another way of being. And so to this imagination and to this call to be people who turn towards stories that we don't know, that we allow these stories to open us and change us. There are so many stories that I still don't know. Ways in which through my entire life, I will live out that truth that we know from 1 Corinthians that now I see dimly. But one day I and we will all see fully even as we are seen and fully known now. But we don't need to be afraid to lean in and to continue to do this journey. 
to learn and see that there are stories that are more complex. Stories like Dalin, her cousin. Stories like those of persons who have had their hair touched and treated as oddities, made to feel as less than human. Stories like the ones I learned about El Salvador, where there was a civil war and Christians burying their Bibles in their backyards. It is by turning to these stories that we can more fully live into the story of God. God's story in the world, which is indeed that story that young Sarah was transformed by. That God is love. And that God's love knows no bounds. That reconciliation is indeed the work that God does through Christ. For as she reminds us, 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. This is our work to live this ministry of reconciliation. My prayer for us as a community that we will be willing to open ourselves to hear stories. To be transformed by them. And in so doing, to emerge from the darkness of the ways that racism continues to haunt us and to walk more fully into the glorious light that is the freedom we are offered in Christ as we discover that God's story and God's love will always hold us, even as we learn stories that haunt us. For it is in being willing to be open to hear these stories that we more deeply discover the good news the news of the story of love. I pray that you will read this story and that you will let it trouble you, that you will let it open you, that you will wrestle, but that you will listen. And that in the hearing, that we might together more fully discover the freedom and the life to which Christ is calling. I recommend this to you so highly. It's Austin Channings Brown. I'm still here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Please read it and then join us as we will be talking about the book on Tuesday, March 9th at 6.30 p.m. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's really great stuff. Um, thanks for that. And, and um, I just wanted to offer a couple of comments uh, that have struck me uh, in reading this really lovely and profound book. Uh, first of all, it's just, it's such a readable text it's um she is just a marvelous writer um and I, that has struck me as i've gone through again and again and actually i i had been working on a book myself and um and was you know kind of taking cues in some ways from the way that she was able to put things in the the second thing that just really also struck me from just the very beginning in that very first chapter um is that this really is a book about in some ways about wanting to be seen, you know, for who you are. And she talks, you know, she shares the story around her name and how she was given her first name, Austin, which sounds like a male name and not just um, a male name, but a white male name. And she talks through experiences that she's had um, that, uh, you know, in which people often are expecting that. And, and then she comes in a black woman and, um, and I thought, I, I suppose what I thought I heard underneath it, right, was wanting to be seen, um, you know, and wanting to be embraced for who she was, as opposed to who others expected her to be. And then, of course, that, that's not just personalized, obviously, that expands out. 
you know, in a world made for whiteness, right? Which means that people expect you to be white and they put that upon you. And it's precisely resistance against that, that she and her tradition, her community, her culture um, has, has held at bay. And I just found that uh, really uh, powerful um, from the get-go. I think another thing that has struck me, of course, is the way that she stands in a line, a literary line that, that stretches from James Baldwin through Ta-Nehisi Coates into her work. And um, obviously we're going to be reading uh, uh, Baldwin's probably most well-known text, The Fire Next Time in May. And so I want to encourage people to uh, if, you, if you're going to be uh, joining us for both of these, thinking about those connections. Um, so, yeah, those were two things that really struck me. And I, I, I love the last two chapters. Um, also, uh, the way that she kind of frames the kind of the problematic language of reconciliation, um, which is, you know, oftentimes been used as a way of getting around issues of justice, reparation, repair, um, and I loved, there was one passage where she said, reconciliation is not just us hanging out together. Um, and so that to me was, was uh, well put. Um, and that last chapter, standing in the shadow of hope, was such a um, deeply Christian way of taking up the truth of living in a world that is not yet transformed in which hope comes to birth and dies a thousand times over. And yet the shadow remains, right? I'm going to still, I'm still here. I'm still going to live. I'm still going to write. I'm still going to speak. I'm still going to be, um, even if I don't know if I'll ever see the, train, the change and transformation that I long for. So I found those things to be truly beautiful. So please mark your calendar, plan to join us on Tuesday night, March 9th at 6.30 p.m., where we will have a conversation about this book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. We do still have copies of the book available at the church. You can stop by and pick it up. I guarantee you want to read this book. It's going to be one of the most important books I think you'll ever read. It's readable. And it's, I think, an important story, not only because we are wrapping up Black History Month, but because we are in Lent. Mm. And so we want to be a people who not only turn from, but turn towards. And we hope you'll join us in doing that as we read Austin Channing Brown's book and wrestle with that together. Christian, will you send us out with just a uh, prayer as we close? Oh, God of life. God who gives life, God who gives breath. Help us, oh Lord, to turn to you. To turn towards your love, to turn towards your way. To be willing to take up our cross in the midst of a world where there are too many crosses. So that... We can help our brothers and sisters. We can become truly brothers and sisters to others. So the crosses don't have to continue to proliferate in this world. We ask and pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Take care, everyone. We'll look forward to talking with you more soon. <laughs>